Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Please take your Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 52, and I'm reading from verse 13 of Isaiah 52. I'm going to read to the end of chapter 53. We're in a short sermon series called Amazed by Jesus, and this evening, Amazed by His Death. You'll find it on page 613 if you're using the church Bible, the black church Bible, page 613 or large print 729. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. Here's why this passage belongs in our sermon series. As many were amazed at you. And friends, what we are about to read here is astonishing. Is amazing. Maybe these verses are very, very familiar to you. My simple prayer is that you would see them perhaps for the first time freshly. Uh, If you look at the the wording in front of you, if you look at the passage, the way that this is laid out, we we read it as a passage, but it is actually a song. And it is a song in five verses, verses 13 to 15, verse 1. Then chapter 53, verses 1 to 3 is the second verse. Verses 4 to 6, the third verse. 7 to 9, the fourth. And 10 to 12 is the fifth verse. And the words here are so astonishing. Six years ago, we took time to look at each of the five verses, one sermon on each of, each of the five verses. Tonight, we're only going to look at verses four to six. Uh, but with what you hear, you might want to find those sermons on our website, look them up, I think about six years ago, and treasure again all that is here. So let's hear again. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you. Here's why. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, a picture of strength, majesty, power. So what are you expecting next? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Please take a seat once more. My son died for nothing. Those were the words that I heard this week. Maybe you heard them as well on your television screens. Those words came from the mother of Warrington soldier Daniel Wade, who was killed by the Taliban in Afghanistan 2012. Daniel Wade was one of six soldiers killed in a massive bomb. My son died for nothing. After watching all those chaotic scenes in Kabul after the Taliban seized control of the capital, Daniel Wade's mother was moved to tears and anger by her feelings of senseless loss. I am devastated, she said, as to me, my son sacrificed his life for nothing. Why did he die? What was it worth? Nothing screams futility to us, does it, like an untimely, pointless death. Somebody in the prime of life, cut down, robbed of a future, their, their very existence seeming to amount to little or achieving absolutely nothing. So why are we celebrating a death this evening? How is that even possible? If you've been a Christian for a long time or been around church, it becomes second nature, doesn't it? We've just been singing about death. Look at the song that we're going to treasure together after the sermon, the second verse, the body of our Savior Jesus Christ. We're going to sing it torn for you. Eat and remember the wounds that heal, the death that brings us life. Why did Jesus have 
to die. What did his death achieve? So we're going to look at this song together. Here's what we're going to see. I want to show you three things this evening. Look at his mission. Isaiah's servant song, written centuries before the Lord Jesus Christ, narrows down to be so clearly about the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? That is who we're looking at and thinking about this evening. So three things. Number one, look at his mission. Number two, look at our plight. And number three, look at the picture. If you want three Ps, look at his purpose. Look at our plight. Look at the picture. In in Hebrew thought, you, you, you don't put the climax of an argument at the end. Okay, if you're writing an essay in school and you're <clears throat> building up to a conclusion... You're taught, aren't you, to have an introduction, have a middle bit, and everything builds towards the grand finale at the end. Hebrew thought does not work like that. You put, you put the climax of your argument in the middle. You build up the mountain and display right at the center exactly what you want everyone to see and then lead people down the other side of the mountain. So what, what, what did I say earlier? Five verses in this song, verses 13 to 15. Verse 1, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 53, verse 2, right in the middle, verses 4 to 6. That's where we're going to focus this evening. Verses 4 to 6 are the heart of this song. So point number one, look at his mission. Look at the purpose of the Lord Jesus. Why did he come? What was he doing? And you see, if verses 4 to 6 are the heart of this song, then verses 4 to 6 themselves have a heart. There is a center within the center. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jesus came to do something. He had a mission. And Isaiah tells us in verse 5, it was to take upon himself punishment, chastisement. Now, in the Old Testament, if, if you saw somebody suffering and suffering terribly, in the Old Testament, it was so common to look at a person like that and to wonder What have they done to deserve it? They must have done something. There there was an assumption that God must have been punishing this person for their wrongdoing. Remember Job's friends when they come to him and see Job in the state that he's in? Job, there must be something that's caused this. It was a, a mistaken but underlying assumption. If a person has been smitten, it must be because they're a sinner. That's the sense in the second half of verse 4, isn't it? Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. If you looked at this man whose appearance has been so disfigured, chapter 52, verse 14, his appearance has been so disfigured that he does not even look human anymore. Well, in Old Testament times, you would look at somebody like that and think there must be some terrible sin in his past. He he must have done something. It is the only explanation that can be given for this. God must have smitten him. God has afflicted him. 
Isaiah is saying to us, yes, to think like that is half the truth. You've got, you've got hold of one end of the stick, yes, but not the whole truth. Yes, he has been smitten by God, but not for sin in his own life. There is no terrible sin in his past for which he is now suffering. He has not done anything to deserve this. To, to look at this man walking alone to the cross and to conclude that he must be the worst of men, now at last getting his just deserts, Isaiah says, no, that would be to make a terrible mistake. No, he is not a sinner, but he is being punished. That much is true. That much is very, very true. It's so clear, isn't it, from verse 5? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment, the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus' mission, his, his purpose was to bear punishment for sin to carry it, to, to face it, to take it onto himself. What does verse 5 say? To take it upon him. Now, I reckon in a room, a room like this this evening, I reckon that we are probably, probably on quite a big spectrum if we were to interview each of us over coffee, quite a big spectrum when it comes to the idea of punishment. So uh, somewhere in this room, we have the disciplinarians among us, don't we? And... Somewhere among us, we have the laid back amongst us. Maybe it's a generational thing. I guess a lot depends on where you came from, your family. Some people, particularly older generations, you grew up with the cane and the belt, didn't you? It's what happened in school. You stepped out of line and there was punishment to be faced. And for some of us, that is very hard to get our heads around, to get our head around punishment in that way. Verse 5 is showing us the measure of how seriously God takes our rebellion and sin. We need to have this clear in our mind, friends, that the crookedness of the world, the crookedness of the world will be righted with punishment. Punishment is not all God does or all he will need to do. Punishment is not sufficient to remake the world, but it is necessary. It is necessary. I think we know this, don't we? Whatever, it, whatever we think about discipline, I think we know this. Some of you will remember over 20 years ago, April and May 1999, for three weeks, those who lived in London, Londoners lived in anxious suspense. Do you remember this? As a series of nail bombs ripped through the city, each one in different places, each one targeting different minority groups. So the bomb started in an Afro-Caribbean shopping center in Brixton. Next bomb in an Asian community in Brick Lane. Third bomb in a gay bar in Soho. And within days, the perpetrator was caught, David Copeland. He was caught and charged. And his father, Stephen, found himself in front of the world's media speaking to them. Myself and my family totally condemn the cowardly and barbaric bombings carried out in London in the last two weeks. If David is guilty of these awful acts of violence, then we also totally condemn him for carrying them out. 
my own son, Stephen Copeland was saying, my own son, if guilty of these crimes, deserves to be punished. I wonder would anybody with even the strongest feelings of paternal affection, if we had seen what they did, would anybody be able to say different? No, of course not. Way before those bombs, 1999, decades before that, after Pol Pot's revolution in Cambodia, as he was in the process of destroying one-third of the entire population of that land, Bernard Levin said this, he says, Cambodia has achieved a distinction which has so far eluded those countries terrorized by the most monstrous tyrants of our time. Cambodia has achieved a distinction. It is the first country to be transformed into a concentration camp in its entirety. In Cambodia, ignored by the outside world, the unburied dead cry for vengeance and the living dead cry for pity and they both cry in vain. Do you see what Bernard Levin is saying? The only thing worse than suffering in places like that is if there is no justice for crimes like that. If there is no punishment for crimes like that. No, friends, the Bible knows, the Bible says you cannot fix a broken world without punishment. Without punishment for what broke it. You cannot put it right without punishment. Sin must be answered for. It must be accounted for. Sin must be put away in broad daylight, not swept under the carpet and tucked away in the corners as if it doesn't matter and so that nobody will see. Isaiah says to us, look look at verse 2, this tender shoot. You've seen those in the desert, haven't you? In the cracked, dry ground, a single green plant comes up from the cracked soil. This tender shoot growing, who, who, who went through life with nobody, nobody interested in him. Not worth a second glance. People, when they did look at him long, eventually decided to do away with him and wanted nothing more to do with him. This tender root who had no one clinging to him in the end had something on him. Our sin and God's punishment. Our sin and God's punishment. Do you see his mission? Here's the second thing. Look, not just at his purpose, but look now at our plight. Look at our plight. As you stare at the center of the song, verses 4 to 6, we are, we are building a picture here of what is happening to the Lord Jesus. He is punished, yes, but not for the reasons we thought he was. Not, not because he's done anything wrong, not for his sins, but for ours. Oh, there is a slowly intensifying, ever-deepening picture of our plight here in these verses. The, the calamity that you and I find ourselves in. Punishment was his, but what was ours? What was ours? Look at the whole list in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He took up our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those words, griefs and sorrows, show how sin is like a wound that we carry, isn't it? 
we have weak and failing and crumbling bodies because sin has infected us. We are melancholy and full of woe because we look at our own infirmity and we look at the infirmity of those we love and we have to look at it daily, don't we? Again and again, we see what sin in all its corruption has done to the world and it leaves us grief-stricken, sorrowful. We have to live with David Copeland and Cambodia and a pandemic and Afghanistan and cancer and a hundred other things beside. And it is all because sin has reached out its tentacles into God's world. It has reached us in our homes and in our hearts. And we take it with us. We live with it and we spread it around wherever we go. Our sins make us sad, don't they? Sin has made the world sad. Look how it intensifies, not just sadness in verse 4. Look at verse 5, it intensifies the images shift from illness to injury. The, The servant is pierced because of our transgressions and he is crushed because of our iniquities. There there are two different words. Look at the English word transgression. You can see the meaning of the word even in the makeup of the English word, can't you? It it means to cross over, to trans-align. It is a willful and deliberate flouting of the law. So far on a Sunday up here, not too many people venture up onto the stage and children running around up here. I wonder what would happen if we put up a sign at the front of the the platform that said, no children allowed on the platform. What do you think would happen? My guess would be that we might end up with one or two more children running around. Have you ever experienced that? Do not walk on the grass. I hadn't thought of walking on the grass until I saw the sign. Do not touch wet paint. The very sight of the line makes us want to cross it, doesn't it? That kind of behavior is ours. I have done that. You have done that. Look at the next word, iniquities. It's an incredible word. Iniquity means to, to bend something double, to bend something in on itself, to fold it back on itself. Years and years ago, while we were away on holiday, we had friends staying in our house. Um, I hope they never listened to this. Friends who stayed in our house, we got back to them having washed a plastic cup in our dishwasher. And there it was inside the dishwasher when we got home that the the cup had twisted in on itself. It had folded right down over the top on top of itself, doubled over in places it was not meant to be twisted into. Isaiah is saying, look, transgression is the outward action of crossing the line. It's the outward event. But iniquities refers to what's happening in here. It is the polluted well at the core of my being. It's the bit of me that is always curved in on myself, curved in on my needs, my hopes, my ambitions. Iniquities is the word for the red wine on the cream sofa, the red nail varnish on the carpet, that you cannot, you you cannot wash it out or clean it or scrub it out. But there's even more to it, isn't there, in verse 5? Not just transgressions, not just iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace. 
See, see the implication? Without the punishment, we would have no peace. It's not just that we are sick, friends. It's not just that we are rebellious, brothers and sisters. No more than that, we are alienated. We have no peace with God. We are at war with him, far from him. We are not on natural speaking terms with God. This is the full extent of our plight. Many of you will know some theologians refer to the human predicament with the phrase total depravity. It's a good phrase, but a misleading phrase. It sometimes suggests that every individual is as bad as we could possibly be, which is not what the phrase means. A better phrase is holistic depravity. In other words, every single part of me is affected by sin. It's not that I am as bad as I could possibly be. It means there is no bit of me that sin has not touched, not reached. The whole of our being has sin touching on it. And these verses here simply keep filling in the picture. We are infirm. We are out of shape. We are sorrowful. We are out of sorts. We transgress. We are out of bounds. We are iniquitous. We are out of hope. And we are alienated from God. We are out of sight. See the full extent? Out of sorts, out of bounds, out of hope, out of sight. It is a terrible plight that we face. Listen to these words. They're not not my own. Sin is a malady, an illness. It debilitates the sinner. It spreads like a malignant infection, increasing its grip on the vital functions of the soul like some pitiless disease. Its appetite unsatisfied until it has destroyed every function and brought the sinner down to death. Sin is also a blight. It touches every longed-for brightness in life. It makes every hope fall short of its fulfillment. It makes even our happiness turn to ashes. It is a terrible plight. But friends, that is what makes the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ so beautiful, so wonderful. For look with me at the final thing to see this evening. His purpose, his mission. Secondly, and the third thing is verse 6, the picture the picture. In verse 6, Isaiah is literally giving us a picture to fill our minds with. And and verse 6 looks like a picture from the farm, doesn't it? We all have gone astray like sheep. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This picture from the farmyard, it's not flattering, is it? We all like sheep. You and I are like sheep, and you and I do as sheep have done. And that that picture is actually just another way of describing our sickness, isn't it? We aren't just sick, verse 4 and verse 5. Verse 6 is saying we aren't just rebels, we aren't just dirty or alienated. It's saying we are lost. We've gone astray, gone our own way. It's interesting, isn't it? If you look at verse 6, notice... Notice the skill of the poetry in the song. Here we have both the herd and the individual. 
Do you see it? The herd and the individual. We all, like sheep, have meandered out the fold and down the the road, but we haven't just done it because everybody else is doing it. As if we can say, look, Lord, it's not really my fault. I was just following the crowd. I was going, going where they were going. No, look, look at the wording in verse, verse six. Like the herd, we have gone astray, but then we have turned every one individually. Look how Isaiah goes round the herd and just picks people out one by one by one. Each of us has turned to his own way. Brothers and sisters, this evening, your wandering heart is not my wandering heart. My way of sin is not your way of sin. Maybe it overlaps. Maybe it's the same. Most likely there's overlap and huge significant difference. Lost sheep is the picture here. But you know, friends, this isn't actually a picture of the farmyard. It's a picture of something else. To the Hebrew mind, to the Israelite mind, verse 6 is a picture of the great day of atonement in the book of Leviticus chapter 16. And it's all because of that last line in verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In that one line, all these verses converge on one place, on the head of a substitute animal, a scapegoat. You see, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take both his hands and he would lay them on the, on, the, on the head of a goat and confess over the animal all the sins of the Israelite people. And the confession of the sins and the, the laying of the hands on the head was like laying all of that on the animal. Wayward sheep had all their waywardness laid on this one animal, laid on another, and off that animal went into the wilderness to die. Sins were removed, cast out, taken away by something else. And so the sins were taken off God's people and a substitute animal died for them instead of them. All the way through these verses, Isaiah has been showing us that Jesus dies as our substitute. It has been a constant contrast, hasn't it, between him and us. Look at it again, verse 4. He has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He, our, upon him, the thing that brought us peace. He for us. What was due to us was paid to him. What we should have carried, he took up. What should have been laid on us, he had placed on him. You know, you can spell the meaning of Jesus' death with four letters. Four letters. I've said this before. S-W-A-P. Swap. That is the very essence of why he died. That in the place where I should have been, someone else stood, takes onto him what was due to me. It's really important to be clear on this, isn't it, friends, as we think about the way that we think about death and love and sacrifice. It is 
only substitution in punishment that makes the death of Jesus an act of love. It is not loving to die for someone else unless they benefit from the death. It's true, isn't it? The husband who says to his wife, romantic stroll on the clifftop, who says to her, darling, I love you. Let me show you how much I love you. And he turns and jumps off the cliff. He's not a lover, is he, but a lunatic. Death is not love. Pierced, crushed, wounded, it is not automatically loving. No, it is only loving if someone else benefits. If someone else receives what they would not have received unless the person dying gives to them by so dying. Several years ago, a gunman opened fire on a beach in Tunisia. And several people were shot dead. Some ran for their lives. Matthew James put his body in front of his fiancée, Sarah Wilson. And he was shot three times. It was, she said, the bravest thing I have ever known. I owe him my life because he threw himself in front of me when the shooting started. That was love. That was salvation. The measure of Christ's love for his people is not simply that he died at the hands of violent men. It it is not that his body experienced such pain and degradation. No, the measure of Christ's love is that he died at the hands of God. Taking from us what was due to us by right and making it due to him by grace. See that in verse 6? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One theologian put it like this. God directed against his own very self, in the person of Jesus, his son, his own righteous wrath, which humanity deserved. That an amazing way to put it. God directed against his own very self in the person of Jesus, his son, his own righteous wrath, which humanity deserved. Brothers and sisters this evening, I hope you know this. I hope you love this and treasure this about the gospel that God trades in swaps and reversals. Swaps and reversals is the currency of what God does and how he loves his people. It's who he is. This tender, fragile shoot in verse 2, chapter 53, verse 2. Look at him in chapter 53, verse 12. A portion with many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. He is raised up and exalted to life. The tender shoot becomes a mighty tree that fills the earth. The guilty, shame-ridden woman who now lavishes on Jesus the most expensive perfume she has and wipes his feet with her tears. Her life is reversed. Her shame is gone. Her sins are forgiven. The lost sheep is found. The prodigal returns not as a servant but as a son. The person who loses his life for Jesus discovers he has found it. The one who gains the whole world discovers that he has lost his soul. The religious elite turn up to the banquet and 
find their seats have been taken away by the poor and the lame. Some arrive at the 11th hour and they work only one hour and they find themselves paid the same as those who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. The first or last. The poor in spirit are given the kingdom. The meek inherit the earth. Friends, the beauty of the gospel flows from here. It flows from this. The the beauty of the servant who gives his life for sinful people. The death of the Lord Jesus for guilty sinners who are his. The innocent lamb for guilty sheep. And here's what it means that Jesus took our place. It means this, no more ejecting myself from God's presence day after day because I'm not good enough. No more keeping myself away from God. No, because Jesus is my rejected substitute. Why would I eject myself from his presence when God ejected Jesus from his presence for me so that I could be there? No more condemning myself in front of God or in front of others because of what I've done or because of who I think I am. No, no more self-punishment for my sins. We, We punish ourselves for our sins all the time, don't we? No more because Jesus is my punished substitute. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for my sins. If it's all right with you, I think I'll keep just a little bit of shame, please. A little bit of guilt, if that's okay with you, because then at least I'll be able to pay my own way just a little bit. Thank you for making peace between me and you, but if it's okay with you, I'll just keep a little creeping fear that you can't really, really be happy with me. That seems to fit better with the truth about me. Thank you for being rejected for me. But if it's okay with you, I'll just stay at a safe distance from you because I'm sure you would reject me if I got too close. No, friends, why did Jesus have to die? Because God is fixing everything that is broken. God is beginning to fix in the death of the Lord Jesus, beginning to fix his broken world with punishment with the righteousness of punishment. Friends, Bernard Levin is wrong, isn't he, about Cambodia. Never, ever let anyone tell you that the unburied dead or the living dead cry for vengeance in vain. They don't. Calvary's cross shows you that God is a God of justice and love. And every sin will have its day in court. Why did Jesus have to die? Because God is fixing his broken people with substitution. The shepherd for the sheep. The master for the servants. He for we. His for ours. Him for us. Him for me. For you. Amen.